All right, time to kick it with your best friends in the singing industry. You know, the mates who know some stuff, but you can still have a pint with. It's the Naked Vocalist Podcast with Chris Johnson and Steve Giles. So today we would like to welcome the, he's a globetrotter, I think is the way to describe Robert. Uh, Robert Sasuma, originally from New York City, um, but moves around the world, America, Europe, namely Spain and France, um, as a somatic re-educator in singing. Feldenkrais certified instructor um, and has worked in many schools in America um, and guest presented at Haverford in Philadelphia, Naropa in Colorado, so many across the world, and is running workshops everywhere at the moment. Um, Robert, hello. Hello. Very great to have you on. So talk to us about uh, where you began life as a singer and how you ended up with your current approach to singing. That is a great story. I actually was born into a singing family, I guess you could say. And apparently my mother tells the story that I sang happy birthday to myself in perfect (laughs) tune, in perfect English at my first birthday. I don't know how that happened. I don't remember that. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. Yeah, so (laughs) they were screaming genius at that point, was it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think my mother was really surprised. Were you on your own at that point, Robert? (laughs) Was it just your your own party? Was that why you were doing it? (laughs) So it started there. And I say a singing family because it seems old-fashioned now, but we did the Sunday dinners with the whole family. And basically between dinner and dessert was singing. And that's what you did. And someone went and played the piano, and we all went around and sang uh, the old tunes and harmonized. There was barbershop in my family. I grew up singing barbershop and harmonizing. So it was a family event. It was a weekly event. And very normal for me. I didn't understand that other people didn't spend so much time singing with their families. So I did sing a lot as a child, and I was really orally obsessed in a lot of ways, listening to singers, listening to opera, listening to jazz. I was in New York City, so I had access to a lot of music. And I was a boy soprano. I was singing really, really high, like there's a female high C, so I was singing the A's and the C's above that. Up until I was about 14, yeah, I was singing super high. Wow! And did you have any? Uh, did you have any windows left? In your- <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was a bit of a freak, and um, I could tell you later why why I was kind of a freak. I didn't know at the time, but I was singing soprano in choirs, and because I could sing so high, often they would have me sing an octave above the sopranos, which was interesting. And so this is just what I did, and I kept singing and kept really playing and. And I would say experimenting constantly with my voice, but mostly in the soprano realm. I didn't know I had what I call my man voice until I was 16 and they were auditioning for the musical. And I thought, well, I can't sing soprano in the musical. So I I sang a, a soprano song in my baritone voice for the first time for the audition. And it was like a Robert Goulet kind of baritone. I had no idea was there. And so once that came out, they changed the musical and said, well, you have to be the lead now that we know you can sing like this. So they, I was suddenly a baritone, which was a bit of a shock. 
And then it came time to go to college, and I really wanted to keep singing soprano, but this was 1994, 95, and I thought, well, I can't be a soprano in college. It was sort of right when the countertenor thing was happening, but it wasn't so popular yet. So I went and I auditioned for musical theater as a baritone to go to college, which I did. And I ended up thinking that I was going to like it, but it turns out I was really not a theater person. I was really a singer. I wanted to be a singer. But the voice teachers were confused by me because I wasn't really a baritone, I wasn't really a tenor, and they hadn't really heard me sing countertenor or soprano. So in the middle of my college journey, they asked me to re-audition. And I had to prepare a re-audition for my junior year as both a countertenor and a tenor. And then they were going to decide what I was. <laughs> really? Which seems so strange now. But they decided I was a countertenor. So I finished my years, my two last years of college as a voice major as a countertenor. And it was the first countertenor of the school. So I pretty much had free reign of the place. I could sing whatever I wanted. And I kept going back in, in the repertoire earlier and earlier. And I got really interested in Baroque music and Renaissance and medieval music. And then eventually I did my master's in early music voice performance as the countertenor in Boston in the Harvard area after that. So that's the, the singing part. All along there, I would say that I was kind of naturally inclined as a singer. I had my way of doing things and it worked pretty well, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't, I was not a good practicer. I would be in a practice room for about half an hour and I feel tired or hoarse after about half an hour, pretty much all through college actually. And of course they wanted me to practice more. And then I eventually started lying and saying that I was practicing, but I didn't practice at all. I did a lot of practice in my head. I did a lot of kind of thinking, but I never practiced and I just performed really. And so I had this anxiety about singing because I didn't really know what I was doing. In the middle of my college journey, I was introduced to Feldenkrais in a recording. It was a, it was a recording of a voice teacher from New York City. Her name was Maxine Davis. I remember her name. And it was a, an, an ATM, which in Feldenkrais is an awareness through movement lesson. And it was played by the piano professor for the piano students, but she invited anyone in the, in the <coughs> school to come. And so I went to this little room in the campus center. I'm lying on the floor. And I will never forget the lesson. It was almost shocking how strange the experience was because I had never done anything like it before. And when I stood up, I felt completely different. And for about a month afterward, my singing has, was totally different. My breathing was different. My standing was different. My singing, my high notes, low notes, it was all very different. And I thought, wow. What was that? How did, how did that happen? I was lying on the floor, moving my pelvis around in funny variations. And then all of a sudden, my singing improved for a whole month, markedly. And I, it set me on this quest to understand, well, what was that? And so I got a little obsessed with Feldenkrais books, and um, I found a Feldenkrais teacher eventually. And in my grad school, there was a full-time Feldenkrais practitioner on the staff because all the teachers were sending their students to body-mind workers, basically. And so eventually they decided, well, why don't we start a department? So there was a full-time Feldenkrais person, a full-time Alexander person, and there was even a, a music psychology person, a performance psychology person. 
So I ended up taking um, two classes of Feldenkrais in grad school, and she was the person. Her name was Olivia Cheever. She's one of the first uh, certified Feldenkrais folks in America. She said, Robert, you'd be a really good practitioner. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know I could be. And in that period when I was working with her and really taking Feldenkrais seriously is when I learned how to practice. Because in Feldenkrais, everything is done through variations. There's repetition, but you never repeat things the same, th the same way twice. So repetition with variation and awareness became a new way for me to think about what practicing was. So I could spend time in a room for an hour working with music and working on a song and, and do enough repetitions that I could actually learn what I needed to learn, but I had tools, at least a way of thinking, where I could make enough variations that I didn't get tired and I kept expanding what was possible at the same time. And then that really set me on the slope toward toward the next level where I, where I really integrated and did the Feldenkrais training. And then now I've been pulling in everything I've learned from voice science and pedagogy and not just from the performer side, but from the teacher side, how to create the kind of experience for a student where they can figure things out on their own and engage their own creativity through their own awareness and their own ideas and their own experience and keep developing in an organic way i'll say that how's that as an intro that was a that was a cracker it's especially the way you ended it it was like uh, like you're on radio or something <laughs> <laughs> which this is i mean it's more, probably more popular isn't it our, cue the music our show we'll right. up. <laughs> what, can we just can we just rewind a little bit there though sure Robert, if that's okay just to, when you mentioned about the repetition mm -hmm. um and you i'm sure you said um, that uh, you don't repeat anything more than once in the same way. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yes. So this is, this is one of the principles in a way, or it's more, I guess, a, a tactic or a strategy in somatic learning or experiential learning, which is you use repetition as a way to keep looking at something so that you can have a clearer view of what it is. However, if you repeat things too much the same way over and over again, what happens is your brain gets bored is basically what happens. And instead of actually expanding what it is you're doing and expanding what it is you're seeing, you're narrowing what it is you're doing and you see and sense and feel less and less. And this is one of the traps I find with musicians is they're, they're trying to practice the end result as soon as possible which means they're cutting out a lot of options before they've gotten to the place where they're capable of doing what they want to do. And so this way of looking at it is as much as possible, do as many variations as possible. And in that, you will learn the song, but you won't learn it any one way. And you will have given yourself more and more options so that when it comes time to choose what it is you actually want to do, you have more options available. That's the idea. And I find this works like a like a charm. Is there? Do you have um? That sounds so logical. Is there a an example? Do you have an example of how that would work in singing in a song? Sure. So if you think about what a song is, so a song is a melody, so a sequence of notes. It is a 
a, a text, which is a sequence of words and sounds, and there's some kind of rhythm that holds them together. And maybe there's an accompaniment, maybe there's not. So that is, quote unquote, the song. Now, anyone can, quote unquote, sing that song, and they will need to bring that into their own system. And because it's those notes and those words and those rhythms, we will recognize it as that song, even though it's another person's voice or another person's interpretation. So if you think of that as the song, in other words, the song is not how you sing it. The song is what it is, which is almost like an abstract platonic form. If you want to learn, quote unquote, that song, whatever that is, in such a way that you yourself are embedding in your learning the most capability and possibility as you learn it, it makes sense to inject variation along the way. So it's almost like you're repeating the melody, you're repeating the rhythms, you're repeating the words. Now you can also vary those. I do that a lot actually with students when they get too stuck. Intentionally varying the melody is actually a good idea. Uh, this leads me to a bit of a bit of inspiration. When I was starting my Feldenkrais training, I was reading a lot of books. And one of the books that I love is a book called The Power of Mindful Learning by Dr. Ellen Langer. And she, I think she may have retired now, but she was or is <clears throat> a Harvard researcher. And she researched really psychology and education. And she did these really brilliant studies. And one of the things that she came to in understanding learning is what she calls sideways learning. And most people come at learning what they want directly. And what she found through experiments was that the more sideways the angle through which and by which you come at learning something, the more secure the learning is. So this is in line with that variation thing. And she did studies where she would have kids in a room stand in front of a poster that had pictures of the cities, main cities in Europe with the name of the city. And she had one group sitting right in front of the poster stuck in a chair like normal school these days. And she had another group walking back and forth in front of the poster, looking at it from lots of different angles. And she would test who remembers them more. And it's always the groups that have more variations and are looking at the same thing from different angles that remembers the, the thing more. And you see this with singers because as soon as you ask them to do something different, what happens? They forget the words. They get lost. They get off from the accompaniment because they learned it one way. If they learned it many ways, they'd be able to adapt more, more efficiently or spontaneously to changes in the environment. And I see this happen a lot on stage. Of course, unpredictable things happen. Someone makes a mistake, but you have to keep, keep going. You can't crash and burn. It's not allowed. Um, sometimes, in, <laughs> sometimes in auditions, I've had, I've had in New York, um, sometimes, let's say there was a uh, so sometimes there, let's say there was a um, an electric piano in the room, and in the audition before, someone changed the 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 tuning of the piano, and then for the next audition, forgot to change it back. So the person comes in to sing their song, and all of a sudden, it's a minor third higher than they practiced, and then they're they're like, oh, I can't sing this. This is too high. So. Why, why don't we sing the songs in many keys as preparation for the key we're going to sing? Why don't we do it as slow as possible, as quickly as possible, um, 
and play with lots of variations so that in an arbitrary way, we're preparing for anything that could happen. And then, of course, we get out of the arbitrary and then make choices. But the more options you have, the better choices you're going to make. That's the idea. And I think that's going, that's going to resonate with a, with a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how many times as a teacher, especially when I was working with beginners, um, whereby it, it never goes well unless I'm in my bedroom, <laughs> where, where the environment is very familiar. Uh, even the way the room sounds is, is nice to my ear and I can deal with that. But any... Even when they say that, I don't even feel incredibly nervous. It's just the environment is so different to me. Um, and uh, as teachers, I, I often hear this talking to teachers. Is, um, uh, for instance, I remember saying recently, we don't need to necessarily do half the lesson of exercises, half the lesson of songs. Sometimes we just whiz through a quick like warm-up of five minutes, and I'm like, okay, let's just sing something and go from there. And then the freak-out face is like, oh, my God, I can't do this now. Not mm-hmm. now. Not ready. And not ready. And, yeah. I, and I can't bear this change in format. So I think there's, when you look at it, and when, when I think teachers and singers are thinking right now, where can I create this variety well, for the sake of learning? It can be on so many levels, right? And that's the idea. And you can be as creative as you want with that. And <clears throat> basically, experience and research shows that even though it seems like you're doing something that might ultimately be unrelated, it is feeding your ability and your knowledge within the context of what it is you're learning. Even if it's by almost a process of this is what I don't want to do. And it's so clear that I don't want to go over there, but I know where there is. So I cannot go there more easily. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I, and I think a couple of, another couple of benefits to this, um, you know, the first one, I guess, chicken for the egg, which is, you know, is um, the the detachment from perfectionism, almost training that by saying, yeah, there isn't one way to do this, you know? So then that immediately alleviates that I have to do it when I'm on stage, it has to be this one way. Right. I think that's incredible. And secondly, you're kind of preaching here. Um, and it's... Uh, <laughs> it's um, and it, 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 what it comes down to for me is um, the stimulation. When you say about it may not directly be the thing that we have to get done in this moment mm-hmm. to fix this thing or to attack this problem that we have, just the, just the general of we know that humans are stimulated by novelty, right. uh, by change, because we perceive that as growth. And so maybe in that moment, something different just in, in, of, in, in and of itself will be enough to help that human being continue to sing, continue to practice, right? you know, and, and going on. So I just see so many different benefits oh, to this. Yeah. Now, this is where we get into chaos theory and complexity theory. I don't know if you guys think about that much, but All I think time. about it a lot in terms of learning. <laughs> for, for a better <laughs> yeah, night. I had that in the barrel. You actually beat me to it. <laughs> so we are a linear nonlinear system that's what's strange about us and if your tendency is to be more linear you tend to rigidify and if your tendency is to be more nonlinear you tend to chaosify or randomize but really the balance in a in a human system because of the way we are i'm generalizing but you get the idea we are a linear nonlinear system There are things we need to do that are predictable and there are options we need to have available just because we don't know what's going to happen. 
And the brain is sort of set up like that in terms of adaptation and learning. It is, it is searching, and the more randomness there is within a clear search, the more likely you are to find the thing that fits. And so if we avoid randomness, we're actually cutting down the optimization process because we're not giving the brain or the system enough information to make a better choice from. Mm. And therefore, we settle on something that might seem more linear slash stable. However, it's more rigid and I would say um, precarious. It's, it's not as reliable because it's, it's not backed up by a whole series of options that are still there, but you're choosing from. Mm. And, and uh, there's a lot of research around the randomized blocking of practice and everything. But from your point of view, would you be able to quickly recommend some of your favorite sort of references to that or even literature? Oh, well, I mean, I basically have read any book that has complexity or chaos in the title. <laughs> and there are many. Um, one that I found most helpful was called Thinking in Systems. I don't remember the author. It's a female I'll, I'll, I'll look for that and I'll put it in mm. the blog post with the, uh, yeah. with the episode. It's, it's actually a good simplification with lots of pictures of really complex ideas. Um, there's also a really beautiful uh, Nova special. Do you know Nova? It's like sort of public television gems in, in the United States. And there's a show called Nova, which is a science show. And they did a, an hour-long episode on chaos theory where they break down the whole thing and it's a like a documentary style and it's 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 called chaos it's by nova you can look it up it's on youtube for free and that has many many ideas in there that one can generalize and they get into the brain and and how chaos and order is the name of the game with the brain and learning is basically optimizing the balance between the two and there's this really cool concept called the strange attractor. I'm not sure if you know about this. No. But this, there, do you know about attractors in dynamic systems? Attractor states. Yeah, so there's mm -hmm. attractor states. So those are things where we tend to be attracted toward within the system. Now there's this other thing called the strange attractor. <clears throat> and the strange attractor is kind of like the big attractor that contains everything almost like the God attractor. And this came through weather science. And so when you plot, chart, plot um, data from weather movements and you have two or three, let's say, um, points of data that you're looking at, you would expect pretty much that they would be random. However, when you look at them over time, they're random within a certain zone. And you start to see that that zone that contains the randomness is predictable. And that's called the strange attractor. And the idea is that that strange attractor is what holds together the randomness and the linearity in such a way that it is perceivable by the brain hmm. and perceivable by us. So you could think of a song as a strange attractor. It's that thing that doesn't exist that does exist. <laughs> and it's the limits, like as soon as you change one word, it's not the song anymore, right? So it has a border, it has a limit. Within that, there's a lot of variation possible. Within that, you can do it 7,000 ways and never do it the same way twice. Yet the song is the song. That's a kind of strange attractor. And from what we know from chaos theory, the more randomness you inject into 
a strange attractor, the more efficient and beautiful the actual functioning becomes. So singing, I would say, from my point of view as a somatic person who thinks about the body-brain connection and singing as part of the body-brain connection, singing is a function. Functions could be seen as strange attractors. So everything you do related to singing, every word you read, every sound you hear, every sound you make, every sensation you associate goes into your strange attractor called singing. And the more you feed that with experience that is linear and nonlinear, the more complete that picture becomes and the more options you have for doing what you want, actually. Mm. I use that a lot. That sounds absolutely amazing as an ethos, and I'm sure lots of people are listening going, hmm, that's going to send me off on a reading mission for about yeah, the next, cool. next few now, weeks. Just to, to blow your mind a little bit, every lesson is a strange attractor. Come on then. So here we go. He's, he's invited it in. Go on, hit me, hit me with it, because I don't know if I can so take any more. Every time you're in a room with a student as a teacher, that experience from the minute they walk in the door, from the minute they walk out of the door, is a kind of strange attractor. Everything that happens in that room is contained by lesson. Many things can happen in that room. Who knows? They could open the door and suddenly you have a, a pink clown's hat on. And then something happens where that becomes <laughs> this is, part of the <laughs> This is my favorite bit. That's the title. That's the title of this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the last, seriously, seriously, the last episode that we, we talked a lot about unicorns. So that made oh. it onto the promotional image. Right. Obviously, I'm going to take a screenshot of you now without you knowing and put a pink clown out on you. <laughs> yeah, if that's all right. <laughs> As you wish. No. Or we could all three have them if you like. Yes. <laughs> so it, because your brain is really organizing things and experiences in this strange attractory kind of way, that's the theory, you can use that to your advantage. And there's a kind of language or a kind of experiential language that you can bank on within the strange attractor of a lesson that allows the person to more optimally organize themselves within the learning environment that's the idea wow and i think that is once again i i think we we, we could become really good friends robert yeah. okay. <laughs> because, yeah. um, but don't feel pressured no, no, i'm going to force you into you, it you can, you, you can turn him down if you want <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> Only because um, just such similar thinking in terms of we've been we've been doing a lot of work into the the uh, the, the format or mm -hmm. the conformity or structure of singing lessons as they are known to us in this day and age, and how you could say to some some to some degree they have been standardised, which um, we for for a long time we've been saying that it's um, we we just feel that there's much more to be had in that hour or half an hour right. when someone comes in and that focus on that sound that you're making we want to make it different cannot be everything it, it cannot be the only thing that we are striving for in this half an hour human to human relationship right you know and it seems that that's what you're talking well, about the truth there. Is it isn't everything yeah. and to pretend that it is is leaving out 90 something percent of the picture Right. And 90-something percent of the picture is the picture, not that few percent. The sound is not, not the thing. 
I have a mentor um, who is a Feldenkrais trainer. He's, his name is uh, Richard Corbet. I've worked with him um, over the years. And he has a beautiful phrase that I've lifted from him. But it really changed my, my thinking around, around what you're talking about. And he said, it's not the sound that's interesting. It's the organization of relationships that come together to create the sound that is interesting. And that's what we can work with. I absolutely love that. Yeah, absolutely. Sound, sound is the result. And that's we can't right. focus on that. We have to focus on the other relationships. That's yes. right. And it includes your interpersonal relationship. It includes everything going on around you in that person's life, in that moment, in that room. It includes all of it. And it all has an influence. This is what we know from from quantum physics and all that kind of science, which is, you know, the observer changes, changes the equation. So once you have two people and two nervous systems there in the room, you're, you're altering, you're altering that person's sense of themselves just by being there. And you can use that to the person's advantage. Some people unfortunately use it to their own advantage, but you can use that to the person's learning advantage. If you can learn how to become skillful in facilitating in a learning environment that does take all of these elements into consideration. Mm, mm, excellent. Excellent. So, so let's, let's go, let's go kind of practical on this one, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so if, for instance, if you were to look back on all your years of experience mm-hmm. at the way singers um, or coaches would prescribe warmups and how to get people ready, now we do often see a lot of similarities or a lot of um, uh, structure, which we've already spoken about is nice to break out of uh, to, to increase learning. But what, what would be some, some of your favorite specific ways to increase the effectiveness of a warm-up and how you learn the skills from it? Got it. First, I would say it's not nice to have it. It's actually crucial because without randomness, there is no learning. That's really the, the, the shift of this way of thinking. So, first of all, I do not believe in warming up. I am not of the warming up camp. I believe that most people substitute warming up for learning. And I think there is an actual relationship, a correlation. The more you need to warm up, quote-unquote, is directly related to what you don't know <laughs> about yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you find this with performers. The, the, mo- the more they know themselves and the better they get, the less and less they warm up. This is what happens. You see this also when people are on tour. When someone's singing the same thing over and over for a whole year every day, they don't prepare. They could wake up at four in the morning and brush their hair a little bit and boom, they're going to sing it perfectly. This is something, something strange that the brain is capable of. So if that's not happening when you want it to happen, then it's an interesting indicator of, well, what is your overall function as a system and why, isn't, why aren't you ready? And what would it take for you to be ready without having to go through A, B, C, and D to quote unquote be ready? And I think in a culture where, where we're being told that we have to go through A, B, C, and D to get ready, it's a kind of negative hypnosis where we're, where we're where we're training ourselves to not be ready, which I think is a, a little, uh, well, I think it's a problem. 
So I do not do warm-ups, and I do not start a lesson with, with uh, now let's do scales or warm-ups or anything. No, you sing. And when you sing, you notice how you sing, and you notice what's happening. And that is an indicator of what's really going on and where you are in your system. Now, it might be a good day. It might be a bad day. It might be, um, might be a good day for 20 years, and then all of a sudden it's a bad day. Who knows? But in order for it to be a clean experiment, it's like you don't, you don't if you think of it like an, a lesson, like an experiment, or a practice session, like an experiment, you don't change the experiment before you start the experiment. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, totally. And warming up is like changing, changing the material before you do the experiment. It doesn't make sense. You really want to see what's going on and how what you're doing is influencing what you do. You need to keep it a clean experiment, which means you don't adjust before you start. Yeah, and that's, very, that's quite interesting because um, I think we've all had these people over the years, you know, you would run, I remember this years ago, you'd run some exercises Mm-hmm. Um, the singer appears to be having a nightmare and then you go, okay, this experience is not so wonderful. Let's just go to a song to keep the positivity. And right. they sing like a dream. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, why didn't I just get you to sing at the start? <laughs> I mean, we're, cr- we're correcting a problem that doesn't exist. You, right. just, uh, you just got freaked out maybe by the scale scenario right. and we don't even need to do them. Or you're creating a problem. Yeah. That's often what happens because people think they need to be good at them or that they are something to perform well. They, they in themselves create anxiety. And if you, if you go back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's a goal. So the, if the warm-up has a goal and you're aiming toward it and you're trying to do it, then all, all the, already you've set yourself up for failure, basically, unless you know what you're doing. And if you know how to do it, why do you need to prove it to yourself? Mm. So what are, the, what are the common wild cards then that... I mean, obviously, obviously, a vo- vocal health scenarios, um, mm-hmm. inflammation, things like that, they're obviously okay. going to affect somebody's ability to sing a song straight off. And we would know about those. But mm-hmm. what are the more covert things that you think are much more reasonable to solve that stop people from being able to get straight in there? Ah, so if singing is a function that is built on and includes other functions those functions within the strange attractor of singing can be disorganized. See that? Mm -hmm. So your brain is organizing many functions at the same time. Just think about, you know, your, your blood is pumping, you're breathing, you're seeing, you're hearing, you're smelling, you're aware that there's a person next to you. And there are many things going on at the same time that you may or may not be aware of. And that's happening in the vocal respiratory digestive system as well. So some people have things going on, let's say, emotionally, that are affecting their respiratory system. Now, of course, we sing with and, and within our respiratory system. So if there's something going on that's emotional that is affecting how one is breathing, it will automatically affect how one is singing because they share real estate and they share they share um, functions. Same thing with with digestion. So chewing, swallowing, how you use your mouth, which hand you use to bring to your mouth and eat. Do you always bring the same hand? Do you always turn your head to the right? Do you always have your tongue a little askew to the right because that's how you use your hands? Are you ambidextrous? Are you left-handed? 
I'd, I'd be willing to try this all out tonight with a massive dinner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so using your one hands. Of the <laughs> I use both and just push it all in at once. Like that. <laughs> well, the thing is, we don't tend to experiment with, with functions that we don't worry about or we don't think about. So how many people are really paying attention to how many times they open a door with their right hand or their left hand every day? However, once you keep doing that with one hand over and over and over again for a lifetime, your body is going to keep a kind of pattern ready because that's what it predicts. It's what your brain is predicting you will do. So similar things happen with the vocal mechanism. Your brain is predicting based on what you do, keeping what's most likely to happen next ready and the things that hardly ever happen kind of disappear, like almost like they go to the back of the warehouse. And so if you're constantly doing things with your body and with your vocal tract, breathing, whatever it is, it's going to set up a particular pattern. As soon as you go to sing, it doesn't mean that pattern is going to go away. So how does your brain know <laughs> that that it needs to turn this off and turn that on and turn this on and turn that off unless you give it the experience and the information to be able to do so. That's another reason, reason why randomness is so important. Your brain is going to be less predictive and therefore less stuck in any one or two or three patterns. That's why variation is such a key. So in Feldenkrais, we often take advantage of these basic functions as a way to organize movements. So if you think of chewing is a function, swallowing is a function, turning your head is a function, looking is a function. And so lessons are designed around functions. And your brain, because it, this, this is all tying together very nicely, because of the chaos theory and this whole thing of the strange attractor, your brain organizes your quote-unquote random experiences within the category of functions. And it starts to then organize functions within functions. And that's where you become a quote-unquote functional person. So if you have a very functional voice, it means you have lots of options available to you. One option is not competing with another option. And you can move freely between options and between patterns at will. That is a highly functional system. So, we, so what you're saying there is that... <clears throat> are you saying that the, the Feldenkrais method, the, the general holistic method mm -hmm. and not so much directed um, uh, di um, is, is not so direct for singing right you're using these these kind of wholesale methods within the lesson um, and that develops an overall awareness and understanding of the body's function that then will just be innately used when singing well there's that because the system is a whole system, any functional improvement will improve the whole system in mm. some way or another. Now, I think there's a gaping hole in the vocal aspect of the Feldenkrais method and lots of <laughs> somatic methods because they don't understand vocal function and they don't have the tools and experience to really work with the parts and pieces in a functional way. So if you're too mechanical, you're not going to engage the whole system. If you're too whole system, you're not really going to engage the the specifics that we need to differentiate as a singer or speaker. But both together, that's kind of where the magic happens. So what I've done is I've taken the inspiration for, from basic functions, such as reaching, turning, um, 
looking, those kinds of things, and thought, well, what are the functions within singing, within the vocal tract, respiratory tract, digestive tract complex that we could utilize as a way to structure learning? And it's part of the language the brain already speaks. The, la- the brain speaks in functions in a certain strange way. So let's, let's learn in functions. And wow. I could, I'd say speaking and singing is a function, but it's also related to many functions. So c- could you, is there a way that we could yeah. imagine Christopher has walked into mm-hmm. the studio with you yep. um, for a lesson and, um, and he wants to sing a bit of, um, who are we talking Oh, I don't know. I'm going to leave it to your weird imagination. Um, <laughs> Celine Dion. Oh, why? Oh. Um, <laughs> let's, no, let's, let's, let's say Gregory Porter. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what, what would the next 15 to 20 minutes look like? Well, usually... Chaos. I, <laughs> chaos. <laughs> That's the first thing. Yeah. Well, it's more like you think of it like an experiment. So if you want there to be a clean experiment, there has to be a reference in the beginning and a related similar reference at the end, if not the exact same quote unquote thing. So in order to keep that clean, you would sing your song, Celine Dion or not, and, and you observe like a scientist or like a research would do, you observe. And this is the crucial part of the, of the project, which is you do something, you observe what you're doing. And while the student's observing, so while, while Chris, let's say you're singing right now and you're doing whatever you do, you, I ask you to observe yourself and I observe you. And you might observe different things than I observe and, and I might observe many things. Who knows what I observe? And usually while I'm observing, something will stand out. Something usually um, in Feldenkrais, we call it the greatest deviation from the norm stands out right yes so which means you have to understand what the norm is which is which also doesn't exist it's also a platonic kind of thing that there is the ideal human and there is the ideal ideally functioning human which that's may or pro- may not that's ever... probably me i would have thought oh ah, yeah well, if there was going to be an image of a perfect <laughs> yeah yeah now we know. unbelievable unbelievable so <laughs> in a sense what you're doing is you're comparing the ideal to what you observe the ideal to what you observe. And you notice that something sticks out as being quite strange. And usually that can become the basis of a lesson. And so let's say, I'm going to do this in the imaginary realm. I'm assuming you're not going to sing. (laughs) Hey, Laura, it's me. (laughs) There we go. I did it. I did Gregory. He'll turn in his grave and he's not dead. (laughs) Very nice. I just didn't know what else to say. (laughs) (laughs) What does it mean? He'll just be annoyed. That's it, so, that's it. So no let's grade. say every time you sing, I notice that you bring the corners of your lips down. Which oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. Very much. So, I'll have to screenshot. Uh, exactly. Uh, uh, so is that, is that particularly normal slash ideal slash functional? I don't know. It's not so for then, me. I don't know. I th- that's my impression of Gregory, I think. Ah, mm. Not that he it. does that either. I've seen him lo- lo- lots of times. He definitely doesn't look like that. Okay. Well, let's say you're, you're actually trying to, to sing and really do your best at singing that way. And this thing is extra. In Feldenkrais, we call it a parasitic action. That lowering of the lips might not have anything to do with what you want to do. It's tagging along and right. kind of stealing energy. So then I could think, okay, well, it's, 
it's okay, but there's something strange going on with the lips. So let's start an experiment with the lips that begins to clarify what's going on and see how it affects singing and whatever overall. So one could begin to open and close one's mouth and notice how one uses one's lips and then leave one's mouth at rest and notice where the corners of one's lips are. There's a really interesting thing that happens if you ask people to close their eyes and imagine where the corners of their lips are without touching them and without moving them. They're not always easy to locate in terms of your own sensation. So with your eyes closed, I guess we're doing this experientially now, with your eyes closed, locate where you sense the corners of your lips to be. Is it normal yes. for them to start twitching? Were you well, twitching? That's, no, yes. I've definitely got, I'm, I'm, I'm de- I, I think I can find my right one. Right now. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I think awesome. that means you're absolutely finished. <laughs> Well, we As have a singer, preference. get out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, everyone does something different on the right side of their lip corner than they do on the left. And, and this is part of how we use ourselves. And we, w- we won't do it right now because the experiment has been ruined. However, if you want to try it, you close your eyes and you sense your, your corners of your lips. And then imagine, don't do it, imagine that you're going to bring your fingers to touch the corners of your lips. So in your imagination, both hands move and your forefinger goes to touch the corner of your lips. Corners. And where would you imagine that the fingers would go? And then once you've done that in your imagination, enough to feel sort of clear about it, actually do it with your eyes closed, bring both fingers floating into the air to land on where you think the corners of your lips are and, and where they are, leave them. In other words, don't move them. <laughs> don't move them. <laughs> oh, I'm severely left of my face. That's why I'm laughing for yes. that because this is audio only. That was ridiculous. I was absolutely sure. I was so shocked. I missed. For all the listeners, Chris ended up on his eyelid. Scratching <laughs> <laughs> his ear. And this is, this is totally normal. Is it really? Yes. Because Thank God for that. We are, we are basing what we think we're doing with our body on our perception of what and where our parts are. And what's doing the perceiving is your brain. Your brain is encased in your skull. It's never seen the light of day. And it's basically moving your body around based on what it thinks it needs to do based on sensory information and prediction. And, you know, sometimes just taking a shot and hoping it works out. So a lot of times, this is what people talk about when they say we have, we're mismapped. So your brain has a particular image potentially of where it thinks your lips are that work for you, but it doesn't mean they are where they really are. And it doesn't mean they are in an ideally neutral place. And all of this affects how you sing. So my view of myself in my head is like basically like a surrealist painting. <laughs> that is exactly it. Yeah. Dali, good. It's, it's Picasso. <laughs> Did he it's cut off his ear? I can't remember which one it was. Is that the one? I don't think it matters, mate. Does it matter? No. no. They all did something crazy, didn't they? (laughs) So if we 
act in accordance with our self-image. And this is one of the principles of Feldenkrais. This is something Feldenkrais said, Dr. Feldenkrais. We act in accordance with our self-image. If our self-image is not in accordance with our actual body, there will be a mismatch and we will use ourselves inefficiently. So the, the process is one by which we are updating the self to the self. We're updating the body to the brain the brain to the body. We're updating the voice and all of those parts to the brain and the brain to the voice so that there's this sense of actual clear understanding and connection. And you can do that through movement, through sound, through lots of things, through imagining like we just did. And all of that work updates the connection so that it's ideally more and more in alignment. Mm. Reality. That's the idea. That's so awesome. We were talking about symmetry earlier, weren't we, Steve? Mm. Um, or rather, you, were, you brought it up as being an important point. What were you talking about earlier in terms of symmetry? Oh, just in terms of um, with all of this. Well, it, it, it definitely makes sense now. Because it, and, and it actually came up a few months ago in a conversation we had as well. In um, you know, people trying mm. to, uh, uh, coaches or teachers aligning singers to what is deemed as being the central when in fact the 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 human may uh, let's just say have one leg shorter than the other, or yep. and which will then misalign. Well, not misalign. That sounds negative. Realign <laughs> the the back, the spine up to the neck, and then in fact it may actually be given their circumstance completely acceptable for them to slightly tilt their head to work with in alignment with the rest of their body. And I guess what you're saying here is that what, we're, what you're doing there is understanding and having an awareness of the individual and are by no means saying that there is a rod up your back and we need to stick to that, right. that rod. So let's, let's clear up a few things. There's a difference between structural symmetry and functional symmetry. You can be structurally asymmetrical and functionally symmetrical. Does that make any sense? Mm. No. <laughs> okay. So in other Don't words, ask me to explain it though. You okay. keep about it. <laughs> I say yes. <laughs> so in other words, you might have one leg that's shorter than another. You might have one eye that's more forward than the other. However, you can use yourself absolutely symmetrically within function. In other words, you can move your leg just as forward on one side as you can on the back side, on the other side, I mean. Not because one leg is longer or shorter, but because you've learned to balance the function regardless of structure. And so we're not suddenly going to become perfectly structural, symmetrical people. That's not what we're looking for. That's the more clinical slash chiropractic model. This is more a functional model where it's like, well, can you turn equally easily to the right and to the left regardless of, of any asymmetries you might have in the ribs or or in the spine, then great. And, and so that's, that's a functional versus structural point of view. And so it gets you around all of these kind of good, bad, right, wrong, um, and let's say perfect, imperfect problems that we arise, that arise when we start looking at what we actually do. And, and what you, what you start to realize is that through a learning process that has randomness, that has order, that has an intention, you can update yourself in such a way that your function improves regardless of anything that's going on. 
Now, sometimes structural things change as a result, but that doesn't matter, actually. Right. <clears throat> that's, an, that's a very interesting way to look at it. And yeah, funny enough, like rather than just looking at it, at the mm-hmm. situation and seeing asymmetry, you have to test it with the functions and say, okay, functionally, it's, functionally it works despite how it looks. Right. Um, that's, really, that's a really amazing way to look at it. And this, this is where Feldenkrais said some strange things. He would say, I've met people who are um, handicapped or who have some kind of actual physical defect who are more functional than people who don't. Mm, wow. And that is a different way of looking. So they are using themselves the way they are with much more function and ability than people who quote unquote have all the right parts in all mm. the right places and don't use themselves well at all. Can believe it. Yeah. And that is a very interesting thing. And remember in the way beginning, I said, well, there's a reason why I sang soprano when I was a kid. Well, a few years ago, I went to a laryngologist and I had myself scoped for the first time. And it turns out that I am a laryngeal mutant. I did not know I was a laryngeal mutant. And thank God I didn't because I think I would have screwed up my voice if I had known how, quote unquote, wrong my parts are. So can you expand on this? I'm incredibly intrigued. Mm. So I have four points of mutation in in my laryngeal area. First one is my vocal folds are about a third longer than the average male. They're really long. When you look at, the, look at them and you think about how long they are, if the normal vocal fold is about this long, mine are about that long. So wow. about an extra third. So they're abnormally long. Then I have virgitures. So do you call them virgitures? We call them sulcuses. Oh, yes, sulcuses, yes. So I have major sulcus on the tops of my vocal folds, like someone took a spoon and scooped the ice cream off the top of the ice cream. So if you took two spoons and scooped the ice cream off the top of my vocal folds, it's like there's a, there's a ditch. They're abnormally thin, like layers of the vocal folds are missing. Wow. So that's a mutation number two. Mutation number, I'll, I'll go upward. So then the next one would be the false folds. So my ventricular folds, which are just above the true folds, are abnormally distant from my true folds. We would normally see that they're close and they'd make even a shadow on the vocal folds when you look down with the camera. Mine are so far above that they don't make a shadow at all. They're, they're really distant. So that's mutation number three. Mutation number four is I have an omega epiglottis. My epiglottis, which is the cartilage um, just behind the tongue and above the folds, um, is so cramped that it basically is smushed and folded in two. And these are my mutations. <laughs> Blimey. Mm. So yeah. you, you are a superhero, essentially? Well, what I've done is I've learned to do everything I want with my voice. I can sing high, I can sing low, I can sing loud, I can belt. <clears throat> now, it took me a long time to figure out belting. Now I know why, because my vocal folds were so thin and so long. Mm. It's almost like the opposite. And no wonder I was a male soprano. I have big, long, thin folds. And I learned to use the parts I have in such a way that I can do what I want, but I do it in a different way than other people do it. And if you look at how I have, have figured out the tactics that work for me, by the way, I have no problems with my vocal folds. I have no edema. 
no nothing. Most people in my situation would have swelling in the folds. They would have all sorts of problems because they'd have a hard time bringing the folds together. And so a lot of times people would clear their throat a lot and try to make them fatter by making them swollen. I think actually that's what my father does. I have a feeling my father has a similar setup except he's dysfunctional and I'm not. <laughs> so, but we can, we can leave that there. Um, so the, the shock of my life is I've realized when I was watching myself with the camera speaking and singing is I use the ventricular folds like a sphincter as if they are an extra sphincter and I squeeze them constantly and I'm doing it right now, except you can't hear it because they are so far above my vocal folds that they don't impinge on the vibration. Which would be in your, your average person. Mm. Yeah. So if I tried to do what I was supposed to do, I probably would be dysphonic. And if I thought I understood enough to do what I should do with this situation, I bet I wouldn't have figured it out. Mm. But through trial and error and lots of randomness and experimentation and sensing, I figured it out not knowing I figured it out with such with such interesting challenges. Well, I see, it really does align. It sounds like you've really, um, the work you do really aligned with your journey in life, right. you know, and, and, and on that note, it, again, it's testament to um, the, or at least justifies the thought of, you know, everyone, you know, you're, you're clearly a mutant, Robert, but, um, but yep. everyone is, <laughs> you know, to some exactly. degree on that spectrum. And, and again, back to that, classifying everyone as the same because they're a singer and they walk into the studio. And I'm, I'm just wondering about that though, Robert, is there any, do you get any, have you had, and do you continue to get any resistance to this technique? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, some people want a quick fix and they want things to be linear. And I think that's a mm. bit of a disease in the voice community at the moment. <clears throat> There's a lot of linearity going on. And um, I, try, I try to stay out of it because sometimes when I speak from the point of view that I hold, which is much more uh, in line with um, chaos and complexity and not just linear, the, the way I talk seems very strange to most people who are, who are in a more linear kind of old science model of A plus B equals C. And I'm just not in that model anymore. And I've made the paradigm shift away from it. And it's t it took years, but I did. And so I see now that if I'm going to try to be too linear with a person, I'm doing them a disservice because I know they're not a linear system. I know they're not, not a linear being. And if they really want to learn, I'm sorry, but it's more complex than you, <laughs> than you um, may have been led to believe. And if you can relax, and I like to say, let the lesson lesson, let the process process, let your, let your nervous system do its own magic. You will figure things out in a way that is way beyond what a person could understand. And you don't have to understand to do. And I think there's that, there's that a little, little bit of a disease in, in our culture. It's like, well, if I don't know what I'm doing and understand it and have it nailed down, I won't be able to do it. I that think that's so true. Pre previous guest, Mary Beth Dame, didn't she said something kind of similar as a, mm -hmm. You know, ten a tennis coach does not need you to know the anatomy of your arm to hit a ball, but in the voice community everyone seems to not let you sing unless you know your breathing anatomy, diaphragm, and mm. everything else in the vocal track. Yeah. 
Now, I'm sorry to say this, and maybe it sounds harsh, but we're not that smart. You are not smarter than your own nervous system. Sorry. So you are not going to be able to manage all the variables of just your voice any better or at all compared to your nervous system. So, you know, the unconscious part of the brain, it's not really unconscious, but, you know, the other, the back part of the brain, it's processing. I mean, some have calculated it to be four, 40 million bits of information per second versus the front brain or the more conscious brain, which is only processing 40 per second. Wow. So if you're going to try to run your whole system on that 40 per second, you are not going to be able to do it. You are going to distort it or you're going to reduce it to the point of absurdity. So the, the question is, how do I take what I know and take what I want and use the language that that 40 million bits of information processing part understands? So that part of my brain is what takes care of it, not my conscious control brain. Mm. that's the trick that is an incredibly um deep question Mm -hmm. uh i I see the remnants of that in in people every day (laughs) trying to process too much in the conscious mind um uh, we have one last question to um to throw at you if that's okay with your amazing infinite wisdom Mm -hmm. um talking about let's let's put somebody on stage okay we're not necessarily going to paint the picture too much, but they're on stage um, and they're, let's say their voice is, uh, or their material is quite challenging. There'll be a contemporary singer as that's literally the lion's share of our audience. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest to somebody in order to facilitate the body and the mind being in a lovely synergy and you thinking less about singing? What would you, what would you recommend to them to do or think during a performance? Well, there are a few things. First, this is a great recommendation for a book moment. One of the best, my, one of my most favorite books that I've ever read is called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Yeah, I've read it. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. There's a lot of clues in there. And I learned a lot about myself reading that book. And he talks a lot about performance and being able to get to a state where you can go to zero right before a performance. Not anxiety, not preparation, not make sure this muscle, make sure this muscle. No, go to zero and let yourself rest. And trust that you've put, I mean, if you have, that you've put all the information in your system that your, that your system needs to be able to do what you want. You have, at some moment, you have to trust it. Now, sometimes for some performers, it's a bit of a, of a gamble in the beginning because, because you can't practice performing. It's very difficult to replicate what happens when you're performing. When you're not performing, you have to perform to perform. And it took me a while to understand that. When I was in my performing days, singing as a countertenor with orchestras and doing doing tours and things like that, I had a lot of anxiety because if if you've ever sung with an orchestra, you have to sit on stage and wait in front of everyone while the orchestra does whatever it does, and then it's your turn to sing, and then you just stand up and sing. There's no backstage. There's no... There's no preparation. You just have to sit there and sometimes for half an hour with your book in your lap, looking completely poised while you're freaking out and then sing. (laughs) And I found that to be a horrible situation. And so I eventually went to a a body psychotherapist person and I, and several, and I thought, how do I deal with this? Because this is, this is not just singing. I know what to do. It's, this is psychology. And one person 
recommended this thing he called looping. And the idea was find a part of your body that does not feel anxiety or stress at all. And so then you have to take your brain, you have to sense yourself, and you find a place where you feel okay. Are you worried about your ankles when you go on stage? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? So you're not worried about everything, you're just worried about certain things. And often that anxiety, once you start, once that role of the physical anxiety starts going, it's very hard to stop. For me, I would have this little tape in my head that said, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And so I would get tight, I'd start clearing my throat, I'd start feeling all sorts of shut down because I was thinking that. So he suggested that I find a place that was not feeling like that. And being a Feldenkrais person, we like skeletons and bones. And I also think it's good because they're impersonal. It's like muscles are more personal, bones are more impersonal. So am I worried about my femur? No. So what I would do is I would sit there for half an hour and I would really just almost meditate on and sense and almost get in touch with the feeling of my right femur, say. And then all of a sudden I would calm down because I'm not anxious about my femur. And if I'm attending to something that feels good, I eventually start to feel good. Now the looping part is find the part that's anxious and start to loop back and forth between the part that feels easy sailing, comfortable, and the part that feels anxious. Part that feels comfortable, part that feels anxious. And then what happens is you invite the feeling of not feeling anxious into the part that's, that's feeling anxious. And then I would do this for 20 minutes. The next thing I would know, it was time to sing, and I, I hadn't even thought about it. <laughs> and they'd been and calling your name for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd get up and sing, and everything was great. I didn't mess myself up, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And you can do things like that while you're performing. You can let your attention scan in different ways. You can keep your attention more skeletal. I find a skeletal awareness is kind of a key. And there's a a recording I have. uh, There's a, in, in Feldenkrais, we call it the five lines. So you could think of your skeleton as a spine line, two arms and two legs, five lines. And you can use that as a kind of image for yourself to get out of the out of the the muscular tension and out of the anxiety of the muscle body and into the skeleton. And when you start to sing from a place where you're connected to that, amazing things happen because you tend not to get in your own way. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. So uh, we could literally talk to you all day. Yeah. Um, there's so many, uh, so many bombs being dropped today. This is amazing. Um, but yeah, that's all we've got time for, but we would love, we would love to just cram in at the end, please. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, find more about what you do. Um, where should they go on the web? Well, they could go to my webpage, which is robertsusuma.com where I have workshops and, Um, my teaching schedule available. I'm also starting a new website coming soon called vocallearningsystems.com. And that's where I will really have my workshops and worldly offerings there. Now, the one thing I do have that's cool is I have a video learning library that has 60 plus hours of classes of me doing these crazy experiments that I'm describing with you. And I do it in the way I described. Each class is like a strange attractor where we explore something interesting and you experiment and, and 
find new aspects of what you're capable of in the context of an idea. And maybe that's belting, maybe that's resonance, maybe it's acoustics, um, who knows? But that's the idea. Any idea can become a strange attractor and then it all can get subsumed into singing. So I have a video library and um, workshops. Amazing. And um, just so everyone knows as well, you have a, a few events coming up um, around the globe, which is great. Um, where's the best place to find out about Feldenkrais in general? Well, there is www.feldenkrais.com, and that will take you to the American Guild. And there is a, there is a European Feldenkrais Guild. They have their own organization. There's also a German Guild and an Australian Guild and an Israeli guild. Right. And so Feldenkrais, I'm sure Feldenkrais.uk, does that exist? Or Feldenkrais.something? That'll do. Yeah, yeah I reckon if you, Google, find it. if you Google that, that'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I said, like um, like anybody who listens to the show anyway, there's a supporting blog post that goes with this where we include all of the stuff that you've listened to. So don't frantically write it, write it down whilst driving mm-hmm. um, round, uh, roundabout. <laughs> Um, right. You can just go to the website www.thenakedvocalist.com and anybody can can pick up any links that were mentioned in this episode here. But Robert, thank you so much. That was incredibly enlightening. Yeah, well, so insightful. I'm very I'm very happy to be here and share my obsessions. The Naked Vocalist Podcast with Chris Johnson and Steve Giles. 